What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Bring us in, babe. Welcome to Coco Caliente. So a little baby update. I am feeling great. How far along are you now? 27 weeks. 27 weeks. Yeah, 27 weeks. So basically in the third trimester. Yeah. It's crazy. Baby's kicking a lot, a lot. And um, Nicole's bumping. Yeah. She's bumping. (laughs) And uh, it's just peeing a lot, but feeling great. Looking great too. Scared to like, just like thinking about this is when the night, like the dreams and nightmares come like, oh my gosh, because you feel like you could go in labor at this point. This baby is like almost fully developed and it's insane that like it's a, he's a baby. It's a, there's a human in you. There's a human there. I think it's. I asked Victor the other day. I'm like, "Are you jealous? I get to carry the baby." (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, "He's gonna always feel closer to me," which is not probably true. You're like a seahorse where you actually create it, and then you can pass it to me, and then I carry it. Is that what seahorses do? Yeah. Oh my god, that's. I remember you telling me that. That's amazing. Something like that. People think that they got pregnant, but no, they transfer the the egg to the. I think that's how that works. They transfer the egg to the uh, to the dad, and then he Mm -hmm. carries all the eggs, and they come out of his pouch. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It'd be nice to just like take a little bit of a break and have a glass of wine. But <laughs> um, besides that, I'm Isn't doing well. Isn't it crazy to think that back in the day, less knowledgeable about these things, right? Science and doctors and stuff. Mm-hmm. And people would just smoke cigarettes, drink wine, just they do whatever. They all turned out fine. Most of them. Yeah, thank God. Well, my grandma, she had 15 kids and she was talking about it the other day. She had 10 boys. <laughs> and she said like... It, I mean, obviously, but it, it doesn't register in my mind until she says it. No ultrasound ever. No, like, doctor really appointment at all. You just, like, are pregnant. Right, you're pregnant. And as long as you're feeling good, you're, you're good. You're pregnant, and then until you deliver, nothing. That's crazy. Like, 15 times. Imagine, like, not, at that time it was normal, but imagine... Not, Going, yeah, mm-hmm. now doing that, like the anxiety that you would have, like this is everything. Yeah, every morning I wake up, I'm like, did I sleep on him wrong? <laughs> is he okay? Is he moving? Like, please, please kick. Like nine months of not knowing. Yeah. That's uh, crazy. And just, I mean, she was a dairy farmer. So she was just milking cows, carrying heavy stuff. Out doing with the animals. All by herself because my grandpa worked in the city for a car company and doing all of that while being pregnant. So whenever I get a little bit stressed, I think about what my grandma went through <laughs> and like how she did so well with 
I mean, she still was working very hard. So I'm like, okay, Nicole, you need to like chill a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of babies, this aligns perfectly with our guest today. Yeah, we have Tina on. She's a doctor. She's very knowledgeable. We're very excited for you to hear this discussion. I think it's very insightful. So enjoy. Hello, hello, hello. Is this Miss Tina? Yeah, it is. Is this Victor? <laughs> oh, you know me. <laughs> well, I wrote your names down on a pad of paper in front of me, so I would know who to say hello to. That's very doctor of you being prepared. <laughs> do you, I try. Do you prefer being called doctor? Uh... Tina is fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tina, thank you. I'm, just, I'm a mom in the trenches, you know, like... I just picked up my kid from school. I'm trying to figure out what to make for dinner. Just pausing for an interview in the middle of it all. Oh well, and and we've had we've had a pretty crazy day ourselves, mm-hmm. and so now we're doing our our interview of you. So, well, congratulations. What does your baby do? Um, July 28th. <gasps> oh my gosh, it's coming up so fast. How exciting! It is. It's coming up really quick. I'm just I'm about to start in the nursery. We just had a, an appointment today. Um, for like a checkup and everything seemed really good. So yeah, it's going to be here before we know it. So exciting. And where do y'all live? Where, what state are you in? Michigan. Oh, that's right. That's in my notes too. Okay. Are you in, are you in California? I am. I'm in Pasadena, right by the Rose Bowl. You know, a very off topic, Nicole and I just for the first time saw the, uh, the documentary, mm-hmm. uh, Fire in Paradise. Is that what it is? Oh, I haven't seen that. You haven't seen it. So it's about the, no. you know, obviously it's about the, the fire that was in Paradise, California. Well, it did more than that, but just completely leveled Paradise. And I, I what an eye opener yeah. that was. So whenever you get a chance on Netflix. Yeah, I put it, I wrote it down. I'll, I'll definitely, I just, someone also just told me about a great documentary called Ski, uh, Sea Spiracy. It's about. Yeah. Oh that my god! Have you guys seen it? Yes. Yeah. Is it good? Yes, okay. I'm a, I'm a documentary fiend. I'm a documentary fiend. Yeah, that's my that name. One, that one's very eye-opening about things that um, I didn't know about. I didn't know. It transitions yeah. you into the commercial fishing mm-hmm. side of heard. things where that be that seems to be the biggest problem. That's uh, what I've heard. Yeah, so it, it was... Oh, it's going to make me sad, though. I'm so tender-hearted yeah. about animals. I know it's going to make me so sad. Yeah, Nicole, Nicole even has a hard time watching like just the regular bbc like planet earth stuff because they show like you know, oh, know mother nature and you know survival of the <laughs> i like on instagram i'll fo- follow like a cute animal page and then all of a sudden it'll show like this lion with a baby deer in its mouth i'm like unfollow like it's too too much like i want to see the cute stuff I but know. i don't want to see that and i'll like cry about it i know it's Me so too. Bad. i get sad mm-hmm. i love like antiquing and thrifting and like finding treasures and if i even just see like any kind of antlers or horn, like i'm like oh i can't i can't it's too sad mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's in another one not to bombard you but do you have or you have somebody that or you have hbo do you have hbo max yeah, at all we do uh-huh Ex- exterminate the brutes Oh my gosh. Uh, I mean, one of the best quotes from that, and he said something to the effect of history is written by those who win. And Uh, that's a good quote. Yes. So it gives you a really deep understanding of history from another perspective. And it's still facts, it's just from another point of view. I love it. Um, but okay, let's anyway, get- <laughs> back on topic and also, uh, very random as well. When you became a doctor, you went to Baylor, right? First I, <laughs> undergrad. Yep. And then where'd you go uh, for your graduate? Then I got married at 22. 
So oh, I'm so now young. 49, which means I've been married for 27 wow. years. <laughs> and my boys are now 21. One just turned 18 yesterday. And then my baby's 14. Um, three boys. Wow. Um, so I got married and my husband um, had an offer to go teach uh, and get his PhD for free at University of Kentucky. So he moved to UK. Um, I mean, to University of Kentucky. And I got my master's degree there. And then I had a baby. And then I started my PhD work at USC um, and uh, kept having babies as I was finishing my PhD program. So, Oh, wow. Did you, did you always want to be a, a PhD? No. Is that, it just no. kind of fell on your and lap? I never, I never meant to write books either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my plan was to be a high school English teacher because I love teaching and I love uh, literature. I married an English, my husband became an English professor. So I got, kind of got it sorted that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I ended up um, going to uh, getting my master's in social work. I always wanted to really ha- invest my life in people and particularly children. Mm-hmm. Um, and my plan was always from the time I was five years old to be a stay at home mom. And so when my husband got his jo- got the job out here in California, where my family was from, I was so excited to move back here. We couldn't afford to live on a, on an English professor salary. So he yeah. was like, you have to go back to work. And I was like, that's not the plan. And he said, <laughs> I know you, you got to change the plan. So I was like, well, look, if I have to work, I'm going to go get a PhD really fast so that I can be a professor because that'll be really conducive hours to me being home with the boys. Yes. And um, so I had an 18-month-old. I started the program, and um, I got pregnant uh, almost toward the end and um, had a baby right after I finished my coursework and started to work on my dissertation. And then I had another one as I was uh, defending my dissertation. And in the process... Um, I came across this field of interpersonal neurobiology, and I was like, all of this stuff about the brain, parents need to know about it. So I was like, I've got to start sharing this with parents. And so instead of going the research professor route, um, I started teaching parenting classes and doing parenting groups and then did clinical work with families, you know, as a mental health provider, parenting consults and all that and doing therapy with kids and then started writing books and... uh, now that's a weird job. I have a weird job of <laughs> writing books and speaking about them. Um, and so, yeah, I just kept following what lit me up, you know, yeah. what really felt important. And it turned out to be a pretty decent career, it turned out That's to be. so fascinating. This episode is sponsored by SESH. That's S-E-S-H. Traditional therapy can be expensive, and to many of us, it's inaccessible. Hundreds of dollars a month to text with a counselor? No thanks. SESH offers a safe space for group support where you can connect with other people in similar situations, all led by expert therapists. SESH is the leading mental health app for accessible group support, facilitated by diverse, licensed therapists who are experts in their field. Each sesh is a 60-minute online group support session, and it's led by an experienced therapist with specific specialty, and each session has a maximum of 14 participants, Um, and it's only $60 per month for unlimited group sessions with licensed therapists. And it's recommended by therapists, mental health experts, and offers a cost-effective way to meet your mental health goals. Each new user receives a free two-week trial. So the first step, go to seshtherapy.com today and download the Sesh app in the App Store. Again, that's seshtherapy.com. Sesh is a mental health care made easy, and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. I'm just curious, what was your dissertation about? 
my dissertation was on um, this longitudinal, my whole focus in my whole PhD program was on child rearing theory and mm-hmm. child rearing research. Um, but there was a particular data set that one of my professors had where she had studied, um, she had all this longitudinal research on um, these girls who had been sexually abused and they had done 20 years of data analysis on the factors of the girls, like the control group and the girls that had been sexually abused. But no one had ever looked at all the data they had collected on the mothers of these girls. And so I analyzed all the parenting aspects of what made these girls more or less vulnerable to sexual abuse. Um, And then I also dove really deep into attachment science, which has still ended up being one of the most important things I ever talk about. And the book that I wrote with Dan Siegel um, right before the bottom line for baby that came out, the power of showing up dives deep into this over 50 years of research, cross-cultural research that shows that the best predictor for how well kids turn out across everything we measure is that they have what's called secure attachment with at least one person. And it's totally different from what attachment parenting is. I don't know if you guys have been reading books about different kind of approaches to parenting, but mm-hmm. yeah. um, it's really, a, a, it's not at all what attachment parenting books are about. It's really under the umbrella of developmental psychology, which shows like really as primates, we are wired um, as infant primates to get close to our caregivers when we're in distress. And so it's been a really um, kind of great timing with this book coming out two months before the pandemic hit because we have this inborn system as primates that allows us to be more resilient and that allows our brains to develop in the most optimal ways. And that is that when we are in distress to get close to our attachment figures who then connect with us and protect us. And really the main job of primate caregivers is to show up in the moments when our our young are in distress and see and respond to their needs quickly and sensitively to build that trust. And really what that looks like is, um, or what that really means is we are regulating not only their emotional states, like, right, they get scared and they cry um, and we comfort them, but also regulating their physiological states. You know, when they're stressed, we soothe them. When they're you know, when they're really little infants, um, even just uh, states of being wet or hungry or those kinds of things are physiologically stressful. Mm-hmm. And so we soothe the state. So in The Power of Showing Up, we talk about the four S's of helping our children develop secure attachment with us, which are safe, um, which obviously is protecting them from harm and making repairs with them when we mess up as parents and become kind of the source of their fear or the source of unpredictability when we yell or get, you know, reactive um, scene where we tune into what they're feeling. We see them for who they are and we respond in sensitive ways, tuning into their internal landscape. So it's really about seeing the mind behind their behaviors Mm -hmm. and then soothed and that's showing up and comforting and nurturing um, when they need it. And then not perfectly, but when they have repeated experiences of feeling safe, seen, and soothed, they develop that fourth S of security, which really means that they've had enough predictable experiences where their brain has wired to know that if they have a need, we're going to show up for them. And then over time, their brain develops the capacity to show up for themselves, to keep themselves safe, to see and understand themselves, to soothe themselves, and then to securely know that relationships are reliable. And then they can provide that same kind of security in their friendships and their romantic relationships, and then as future parents too. So um, it's really one of the most important things I talk about, I think. Yeah. And and so that, that begs the question, what type of long-term, uh, I guess, effects do you see 
in children that they lack that either one part of it or it entirely. Um, yeah. So, so what, what happens then is so just like there is a secure pattern of attachment, that's what we just talked about. Mm-hmm. There are what we call insecure patterns of attachment and there are different versions of that. Um, one is um, where you're, you kind of grow up in an emotional desert. Your parent doesn't really respond to your emotions. You're left alone to deal with things. And in fact, you know, we have this um, laboratory procedure that um, has been done for decades now that's sort of the gold standard called the strange situation. And this is a a laboratory procedure that's done on 12 to 18 month olds. And what's fascinating is, you know, children are incredibly brilliant and they, by 12 months of age, already have wired in their brains based on these experiences, how to get the best from their parents. So if you grew up where your parent doesn't really respond to your emotional needs or when you're in distress and you ask for them, If it doesn't go so well the way they respond, then you learn even by 12 months of age to stop asking. So in this procedure, one of the things they do is they ask the the attachment figure to get up and leave the baby in the room. Um, It's a safe room, but they get up and leave. And what happens is babies who have secure attachment to their caregiver uh, will cry a lot. You know, they're like, wait a minute, I don't like you Mm -hmm. leaving, but they don't get stressed out. Like their cortisol levels don't elevate. They don't stress out because it's almost like they know, Mm -hmm. hey... I'm going to call, I'm going to cry and don't worry. Cause she's just going to come right back. Yeah. Like I've got this right. But the baby with an, um, an insecure pattern of attachment will either, either be, so in one case, the baby is really stressed, but they don't reach for the parent. They don't cry. They don't give indications that they're in, in stress because they already have learned that it doesn't go so well when they have an, an emotional need like that. Oh, um, so, so that would be sad. one. I know, isn't it? So that's, that's actually <laughs> called um, avoidant attachment. Um, and then another type of insecure attachment is called um, uh, anxious ambivalent attachment. And this is where you have a really unpredictable caregiver. So you have no idea if they're going to show up for you or not, or if they're going to meet your need or not. They're just really unreliable. So in the strange situation, these 12-month-olds um, cry a lot typically when their parent leaves, um, but the parent is typically unsuccessful at soothing them. And the baby becomes very clingy because they're like, I better hang on to you and keep showing you I have needs because maybe then you'll stay with me. Mm. So there's this anxiousness and ambivalence about whether or not they can rely on the the caregiver. Whereas the last one, the, the baby avoids that connection because they know it doesn't go so well. And then the other one, the other there's three really patterns of insecure attachment. And this one is the hardest one to talk about. And it's called disorganized attachment. And this would be what we see in more extreme cases of, of abuse and neglect, where if you have as a primate, your primary drive um, instinctually is when you are in distress, when you are terrified, when you are in pain, to you have this biological drive that says, go to your caregiver to be connected and protected. But if your caregiver is the source of your terror, the source of your pain, you also have a biological circuit that says, get the hell away from what's dangerous. Oh. So it actually creates disorganization in the brain and how to even process their behaviors and emotions. And so um, anyway, those are the insecure patterns of attachment. But I, I do have to say, after talking about all of those hard things, um, you know, the, the outcomes or let me say this, attachment research is so full of hope. I mean, here are some of the just broad brush hope messages. One is it's never too late. History is not, yeah, history is not destiny. And I mean that in two ways. In one way, what I mean is 
the best predictor for how well we as parents are able to provide our children with this most important thing we do, secure attachment, um, is not dependent on whether or not we received it from our parents. And thank God, because about 35% of us had a more insecure pattern of attachment with our parents. So the best predictor for us being able to do this is that we have reflected on those experiences relationally and made sense of them. So instead of running from our past and being like, I don't know, it doesn't matter, it's the past, or instead of being flooded by it all the time where we're triggered all the time, we can look at it objectively and say, gosh, my parents didn't really show up for me a lot of times and I was left on my own and that was really hard and here's how it impacted me and here's the kind of parent I want to be. So really just shining the light of awareness and making sense of our story is the best predictor for how well we're able to provide this secure attachment. So history is not destiny based on our own attachment um, upbringing, but it's also not destiny if, if, and if, you know, a parent is listening to this, no matter how old your kids are, even if they're teenagers or even young adults, it's never too late because this wiring that we're talking about is based on repeated experiences. So as soon as we start providing more positive experiences, our children's brains start changing. So it's never too late. Once we start in everyday moments, helping our kids feel safe, helping them feel seen, helping soothe them, especially when they're in distress. This is what starts moving that attachment more towards positive. And then finally, the, the other huge hopeful message is that parents can mess up all the time and still have kids who are securely attached to them. So that there's just tons of room as long as we make a repair. Is that, so let's say... Oh, I'm sorry. I just, just real quick. Is that just because that's just parents because it's a genetic thing because we are wired to they're our caregiver they're our trust person blood you know because i I'm, when i i guess what i'm getting at is that wouldn't necessarily work for somebody that's not your caregiver outside in a separate relationship right you could just never... yeah it's different yeah okay yeah yeah it's different that attachment relationship is 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 not only unique in exclusive you know, it, that was in, the word i'm looking for yeah but keep in mind, children can have lots of attachment figures, right? Mm -hmm. And ideally they do, right? My, my boys have secure attachment to me and my husband and lots of grandparents and, yeah. um, and even my, my best friends, you know, my best friend, you know, she shows up for them like a parent does. Um, so we, we really want that. But, you know, what's, what's so great about this is that when we mess up as parents, and I know it's hard to imagine when you're now imagining this like perfect baby and you're so in love with your baby and you haven't yet been in the, in the full on trenches, but sometimes, and I'm just telling you the now you will talk to and treat your child in ways you would never imagine or allow anyone else to treat or talk to your child. <laughs> um, and, uh, and part of that is because we're human and children can be very difficult and they, you know, it can be exhausting. And, and so sometimes as parents, we flip our lids and we, we, um, you know, I tell a story in No Drama Discipline, which is a book that I wrote with Dan Siegel that's a pretty radical different way to think about um, the point and purpose of discipline and how to be an effective disciplinarian, knowing how the brain works. Um, and in that book that we both tell stories about times we flipped our lid as parents, and I tell a story about when my three-year-old kept sticking his tongue out at me, I threatened to remove a body part. I told him <laughs> to stuck his tongue out one more time. I was going to remove it. Um, and then I, I often tell a, a story about the three boys. I was playing Yahtzee with them, and they were fighting, and things kept escalating and escalating, and I was exhausted. And I ended up starting out being really immature, and then I ended up yelling at them and throwing the dice across the room. Now we, now we refer to this as the Yahtzee incident. But after, <laughs> after moments like that, the key is, you know, when we 
become unpredictable as as parents, and and that could be aimed at our children, like I just described, or if um, you and you, if the two of you guys get into a fight and start screaming at each other, that can be really frightening for children. Or if you lose your cool doing road rage or whatever it is, when we become really reactive as parents, our children can't rely on us in those moments to be regulated enough to make sure they're protected and to regulate yeah. their emotions. So the key is that when we have those moments, we become predictable immediately by repairing with them. So even if our kids are like, oh gosh, mom's kind of mean right now. And that was really scary the way she just yelled at us. And that feels really bad. I'm not too worried about it because I know in a couple of minutes, she's going to come make things right with me. So there becomes a predictability, even in the face of the, of the unpredictability. And when we make these mistakes, as long as we repair, and I mean, simply saying, guys, I did not handle that well. I'm so sorry I got angry and I yelled and I really wish I had done that differently. Will you forgive me? And maybe even can I have a do-over, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a simple way of repair. But when we do that consistently, we actually expand our child's window of tolerance for the messiness and conflict that come in relationships. So that the first time their friend is mean to them, they don't think they're not, no longer friends, right? Yeah. So they, they allow, it allows them to really have more relational resilience. So anyway, this attachment research is, is full of hopefulness. And, you know, the bottom line for baby book that I wrote, which is a, a very different kind of book um, compared to the other ones that I wrote, because it's alphabetical, it's very short. Like you can, you basically pick a topic, you flip to that, you read you know, here are the, it, what it is, is it's 65 topics that we get the most competing information about. Okay. And so like, if you're talking about sleep training or nipple confusion or co-sleeping, or can you lick your kid's pacifier? Or do you have to disinfect it? You know, all these things, um, you can flip to that topic and you basically get in three or four pages. Here are the main approaches or the ways people talk about this. Here's what the science says. And here's the bottom line. Um, so it's 65 topics, but what I say as the bottom line of the bottom line of the entire book is what we just talked about, about attachment, that really, honestly, the decisions we make for our babies and for our children, they feel so important. And yes, they're important. What we do as parents matters. But what matters more than any of the specific decisions around breastfeeding or co-sleeping or cloth diapers or childcare even, what matters most is that we learn to trust ourselves as parents, that we learn to trust our babies and follow their leads and trust our instincts. But ultimately what they need most from us is to show up and help them feel safe and seen and soothed and secure that we're going to see their needs and respond to them. That's the most important thing any parent can do. And and I guess I, I also have, and you have so much information and knowledge. I wish I can just take the information that you have and put it in my brain. Uh, I'll read your I'll read your books for all that. Yes, Nicole's and been... I started the I like the bottom line for baby. It's very yeah. easy to navigate, and so my plan is to just like read all the sixty five topics, which I've already yeah. started, and then that way I know like I'll retain a, a lot of it. But, but that way I'll reference. know like yeah. oh I remember reading this and then go back yeah. to it and. Um, but I had a question because I know there's always that myth that, oh, if you pick up the baby while he's always crying, then, you know, it'll show them that they can just get picked up while they're crying, right? That yeah. if you just leave them and they'll cry, they'll get over it, right? Is that like a thing? I mean, that that's just like one of those wives' tales. So on 
page 195, I have an entry. <laughs> spoiling a baby by too much holding. Yes, that's one of the big ones. Um, and so one perspective is that if you hold a baby or respond every time, you're going to spoil them and make them think they can manipulate you or whatever. And then perspective two is that, and this is the one that I'm going to go with and is the bottom line, that babies are not capable of manipulation. And here's, and I did my dissertation on this and I've written about it over and over. You cannot spoil a baby or a child with too much attention, okay. too much affection or too much responsiveness. And in fact, there's decades and decades of science. So even, and some pediatricians, especially old school pediatricians are still telling this to parents and it is absolutely wrong based on science. decades of science. Um, what we want to do is to be the most responsive, attuned caregivers, because that's how our babies learn that they can trust the world, mm -hmm. that they can trust us. And when babies are stressed out and they have needs that aren't being responded to, it actually gives, a, they have to spend a lot of attention and energy trying to calm themselves down, trying to manage the stress. And that energy and attention could be going to exploring and learning and relaxing into their world. So here's the thing. Like I said, you can never, ever spoil a baby or a child by too much responsiveness, too much touching, too much holding, right? Where spoiling can come in, or let me, let me back up for one second. And this is a huge discipline myth. One myth is that you either have to be like strict and have boundaries and have rules, or you can be warm and connected and loving. But the science, again, decades and decades say that actually having both is super important. It's the most effective. And that is that we're going to have boundaries and limits and rules and expectations. And those are, we're going to be high in the, those areas, right? Mm -hmm. And we're going to also be really high on empathy and connection and relationship. And when we have boundaries and and limits that we also bring empathy and connection to, it makes our children so much less reactive, which then primes their brain to be able to learn what we're trying to teach them and the skills that help them do better over time. Um, and it also lets them know that we can handle their big feelings and that we trust that they can handle negative feelings. So let me just give a really quick example. So my little guy, JP, was, um, and I have permission to tell the stories that I tell about my kids. Okay. <laughs> um, from my kids. Um, so one time my little guy, JP, was four years old and it, he was really tired and I knew it was going to be a, a, a difficult bath time. Um, I just you know, you know your kids and you're like, okay, I better prepare myself because this is going to be a meltdown <laughs> you know, thing. So um, he's in the bathtub. He's got all these Lego guys, but he's particularly upset because there's one specific Lego guy that is not in the tub with him. And the older brother does not want that particular Lego guy to get wet. And he's being very generous about letting JP play with all the other Lego guys. So I want to respect Luke's boundary. So I say to JP, you know, that guy's not going to be in the bathtub tonight. And he just becomes more and more tantrumy, right? He mm -hmm. just has this meltdown and yelling and screaming. And this is not even my real bath. I'm not even taking a bath right now, even though he's actually in the bath, you know. <laughs> so he's using all this kind of wonky logic. Anyway, so I say to him, JP, it's time to get out of the tub. And he says, I'm not getting out. And he splashes me and yells at me. Now, in that moment, what I want to do is say, you know what? If you're going to act that way, I'm not reading bedtime stories to you, to, to, um, to you tonight. And I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Okay, but the problem with the first 
fun as, you know, threatening him with consequences that aren't going to, if I don't read to him, we're going to have an even worse bedtime. I'm punishing myself. It's yeah. going to do nothing to teach him any skills. It's just going to be a lose-lose. And to say, I don't want to hear it. When we tell our children, I don't want to hear it, they internalize that. And that's actually the opposite of what we want our children to feel. We, If we keep saying that, we're going to stop hearing it and they won't come to us mm -hmm. for stuff. So instead... I take a big, deep breath, and I say to myself what I know from the attachment science, which is at his worst, that is when he needs you the most. And if you want to be the calm in his storm, you cannot be the storm. So here I go, right? So I yeah. hold my boundary. I say to him, you can either get out or I will help you get out. And he says, I'm not getting out. And so as I lift him out of the tub, I'm holding my boundary. It's time to get out. Yeah. As I'm lifting him out of the tub, I say, you're so mad about bath time being over. You really wanted to play with that guy. And you're so, so angry about it. I know, honey, I hear that. So I'm giving him lots of empathy, connection, relationship. Yeah. And I wrap the towel around him. And I say, if you need to cry for a little while, I'm right here with you. And when kids have repeated experiences like that, he learned like, I trust that he can feel his feelings and get through it. That's how resilience is built. Mm -hmm. You know, the difference between adversity and negative feelings and hard things that happen to us, making us fragile or making us resilient is walking through it with enough support. And I'm also communicating to him, I can handle your big feelings. You don't have to protect me. I am the strong protector. I've got this, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think those kind of moments, you know, where we, we hold our boundaries and, and rules and limits and boundaries help our children feel safe because they're predictable. So being emotionally responsive and connected and giving our children empathy and, and sitting with their feelings does not mean we're permissive. Yeah. We're, so we're not spoiling them. Where, where we can get into trouble with spoiling is if we don't have limits and boundaries. And we say yes to every little women desire they have. And we fix every little problem we have. That's where it becomes problematic. But not when it comes to being responsive, affectionate, and, and really showing up for them, especially when they're in distress. I like, I like that, uh, that way of going about it. Because it's, a, it's a, how Michael Scott would say, it's a win-win-win. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a win for you. It's a win for your child, and it's a win for the relationship. Exactly, exactly. And so then uh, this goes into another question that I have: um, doing all those things that you're talking about, but with a young child that is now learning to make decisions and do things, allowing them to fail, knowing that you're gonna—they're gonna fail at something, right? But allowing yeah. them to get to that point to say. Oh, yeah, they're about to do that thing as long as they're not going to seriously hurt themselves. But yep. l let them fall off that bike one more time. It's low to the ground. They might be in the grass or something. Yep. Or, or do this, that, and the third that you're like, okay. I'm or gonna like even lose in a board lose. game. Lose, yeah. yeah. Or, or yep. make a bad decision that's not obviously going to affect their health or well-being, but it'll make them learn to lose or learn to mess up and try again. Like what, what is your take on that? Yeah, and, you know, in our society, we're so um, – we're so afraid of negative emotions, right? And so the way you get the way you get good at dealing with disappointments is by having disappointments. The way you get good at at um, handling, uh, you know, losing is by getting practice handling losing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and again, that's where we also show up. It's so hard to lose. That doesn't feel good sometimes, does it? Right? Yeah. Um, and so we we really, you know, that's really what that scene that I was talking about is about is that we respond in a way that matches what our child's internal landscape is, is experiencing, right? Um, and, you know, developmentally, you know, that's another big thing to keep in mind is that, you know, sometimes we have such high expectations, especially if kids are 
really verbal early or they have, you know, they're, they're gifted in, in certain ways. Um, emotionally, that doesn't mean they're, they're as advanced as their words um, allow for. And so one of the things we, we can think about is that, you know, um, we want to be thinking about developmental appropriateness as well. Like we, we knew some people who kept a vase out or something breakable out on the coffee table when they had tiny little toddling children mm-hmm. because they wanted them to experience having something that they weren't allowed to touch and to practice that. And I was like, you know what? They can practice that when they're three and yeah. four. Let's not, <laughs> let's set ourselves up for success, right? Yeah. So we also want to be thinking about making sure our expectations are there. But yeah, I think, you know, it's very, it's so tempting. And especially, you know, we know we, we have, to, it's an important part as parents to kind of know ourselves, right? Like I am a fixer. I am a problem solver. I am, um, I like to, you know, do things well. And so when I would see my kids, my infant or my toddler struggling with something, my instinct was to rush in and help. Yeah. But it's so much better to hang back and mm-hmm. observe and watch our child because, you know, one of the things we know about the brain is that, you know, the brain is incredibly plastic and changeable in childhood. But one of the best, the ways that the brain learns best is through mistakes. When we make a mistake or there's an error, our brain actually is like, oh, I've now detected an error. I might have to shift something in order to do this in a different way. So when we jump in too quickly, we're actually robbing our child of a learning experience that's really important for their brain to, you know, to really walk through in order for their brain to change. And so, yes, of course, we want to keep them safe. But beyond that, um, giving them a little bit more time and space. Um, and I would also say that um, not just from parent to child, but between the two of you, right? Um, So I, you know, I have, I'm one of those people that I really, I think there's better ways to do things than others. And I like things (laughs) done in certain ways. Um, And so, and my husband and I still, I still work on this with my husband of 27 years. You know, the way he would diaper or the way he would do things wasn't really the way I would do them. And to say, you know what, there isn't just one way. I need to let him find his way and not rush in and, and, quote unquote, fix what really doesn't need to be fixed. It's just different ways of doing. And so mm-hmm. you may find that your child has a, a really different personality. And, uh, you know, the way my boys would play was very foreign to me. Um, and, you know, they would, even though we didn't have any kind of toy guns, they would chew their grilled cheeses into guns. And, you know, <laughs> they would, I bought like a baby doll. I had these boys, so I wanted to buy lots of different kinds of toys. And like, I bought them baby dolls and they would like smash their heads in door jams. And, <laughs> you know, I was like, who are people? Like the way you're playing is so alien to me, right? Um, but really just going, okay, I'm going to, ch- and, and you know what, here's one of my favorite things that as a parent has been, so powerful for me. Um, Dr. Michael Thompson, who has written a number of books, he wrote a book called It's a Boy. And it's really the probably one of the books that I've turned to repeatedly the most during ra- the raising of my boys. Um, and one of the messages he gives really in all of his books is that we should really trust development. And what I mean by that is a lot of the things that we get worried about, like, oh, no, my kid is, you know, um, she keeps making that same mistake. Like, what's wrong with her? Or, um, you know, gosh, she's, she's so immature and other kids don't seem like they're having, you know, meltdowns. Of course the other kids are, you're just not Mm -hmm. seeing it as much because kids fall apart with their parents more than anyone else, um, is to go, you know what? 
I'm going to trust that as my child's brain develops, all of this stuff's going to come online. And that even if we don't, I mean, this is, I have these parenting groups that I teach um, on Friday mornings that are just called office hours where parents just ask questions and I just answer questions. And one of the things I say all the time is, you know, whatever the question is that comes up, I say, even if you don't do anything about this, your child will get better at fighting less with their siblings. Your child will get better at regulating their attention in the classroom. You know, all of these things, your kid will get better at it just because their brain is developing and it's not all on you, you know? Yeah. Uh, of course, the experiences we provide are important, but um, we really can just watch development unfold and celebrate this amazing brain that does a lot of the, the work for us. And, and so... You again, you're a wealth of knowledge. I just, I am. <laughs> I've been doing this a long time. I've I been, can I, tell. As I mentioned to you, my oldest is 21, and so I've been in the trenches for 21 years. Uh, um, but so, I'm also a nerd, and I read everything I can get my hands on about all of this. Well, that's awesome because we need people like you. And so, for obviously, baby in Nicole's stomach, their brain is developing too. His brain. Yes. Um, yes. So, should I be playing Mozart? Should I <laughs> be uh, trying to, you know, speak to him in five different languages? Um, like, what, what should I be doing right now? <laughs> you should be talking to him and singing through through Nicole's belly. Um, we, you know, and there's an entry on this in the bottom line for baby as well. Music um, research shows that music improves kids' intelligence by introducing them to rhythms and rhymes and patterns. But really, the big part right now is getting to know your voice. Okay. Um, and so that's that's the big thing. The other thing is, and Nicole, you can thank me for this later. I promise she <laughs> didn't message me on the side. Is regulating Nicole's states of stress and making her the least stressed possible because mm -hmm. we know that high oh, levels of stress... she's giving me stress, the eyeball right now. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> high levels, that. <laughs> high levels of stress do can cross, you know, cortisol can cross the placenta. So we want a really relaxed, yeah. chill, um, safe mom. Uh, that's an important piece of that. Um, so, and, and I think just reading. And, and, you know, Nicole, I'm glad you said you were already reading through um, mm -hmm. the bottom line for baby. There's a couple of things I would encourage. I mean, first of all, it should go in everybody's um, go bag because there are decisions. If you're having a hospital birth, there are decisions you're going to have to make in the hospital that you don't know you're going to have to make. Like, do you give your baby their first bath at the hospital or do you wait a few days? Right. Mm -hmm. So that's all in. in but I think now is a beautiful time while y'all have time to start thinking about where are we going to differ in our approaches to things, right? So you guys can read these entries and say, like, you guys are having a boy. So, you know, there's a whole section on circumcision. Are you both on the same? I'm not asking you. I'm saying. <laughs> yes, yes, I understand what you you're know, saying. Are, you know, it, are we on the same page about this or not? Um, what about discipline, you know? And how did your parents discipline you in ways that felt good or, or that didn't? We've got a, I've got a whole entry in here on discipline, too, and just thinking about you know, the way you start responding to your infant, really, that first year is really sort of um, trench work for you all to start building your philosophy around how you want to handle discipline. So I think it's a beautiful time now to start talking about what your parents did that you would want to emulate and what things you'd want to do differently and what areas you guys differ. And I think, you know, like my husband and I have really different risk tolerance thresholds. Yeah. My husband has a massive risk to risk <laughs> tolerance and I don't at all. Um, and so we have to, you know, navigate that. And the, the important thing to know too, is that you all don't have to be on the same page. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you really just sort of want to be in the same book or chapter um, and really be able to communicate with each other. And um, so I think, you know, that would be the other thing, Victor, is just really, um, really just try to have conversations about where you guys think you now is such an important formative time to think about who, you know, the parents we want to be. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly you can't anticipate everything. Um, and I'll say one other thing, to, if I, if you don't mind, you haven't even asked, but I would just want to give you advice yeah, based on absolutely. personal experience is that, I, you know, as you know, I've had three children and the transition to one was the very hardest for me. Um, I spent all my growing up years babysitting, being around babies. I could not wait. My whole goal in life was to be a stay at home mom. Um, and I was able to, to be a stay at home until my baby went to kindergarten, which is when the whole brain child came out and, and my life really changed. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I would say is that the hardest part of the transition was my husband and I, who had been married for six years already by that point, we were miserable with each other and we had never had a ton of conflict. And my husband one day said, you know what I think is happening? And I was like, I don't care. I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> and he said, I think we're competing with each other for who has it worse. And what was happening is, you know, he would say, God, I'm so tired. And I would be like, are you effing kidding me? You're so tired. Like I'm nursing every three hours. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were really competing with each other for how miserable we were. We were trying to have a misery competition. And he said, we're on the same team. It's this kid. It's this kid. We got to, you know, we got (laughs) to have the same team. We got to have each other's back because he's, you know, he's making things hard on us. And, And then we laughed about it. And just that recognition made a huge shift in what was happening between us and we could really start supporting each other. Um, And so I think that's the other thing too, is to just keep in mind that, you know, your relationship is still a super important Mm -hmm. part of what's going on. And the other thing too, is for some reason, we all think that we can maintain the same kind of life and lifestyle we had pre-baby. Like if you guys like having your house a certain way and like spending your time a certain way, it's impossible to do those things in the same way once you have a baby. And so to really be able to let go of some expectations, make some shifts, know that each stage feels like forever, but it does go quickly. Um, And you'll be, you know, parenting just requires a lot of flexibility and remapping what your lives look like in different stages. Well, thank you so much for that advice. That's great. That was, that was much (laughs) needed that I didn't even know I needed. So I I appreciate that. And Tina, I, I, I really appreciate you coming on Mm -hmm. the show and and talking with us. Can you, can you go through where people can find you on your social media and the books that you've written and all that stuff? Website, maybe. Yes. My website is tinabryson.com and that's B-R-Y-S-O-N. And you can find me across all social media as Tina Payne Bryson. The place I'm posting the most right now is on Instagram. Um, and there's tons of free content on my website. All of the books that I've written with Dan Siegel and, and The Bottom Line for Baby, which is my first solo, are in audio form. But I've also, um, you know, there are tons of free videos and all kinds of content on my website. And for the two of you, I'm on uh, speed dial. So if you have questions that come up, you know how to find me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tina. We really appreciate you and we wish you the Uh, best. Best of luck. Best of luck to you all. I'm so excited for you in the journey ahead. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. You have a good one.
Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That was such a great conversation. And my favorite thing that she said is that you can't spoil your baby with too yeah, much love. That was interesting. Like, I didn't know that. I mean, people say that all the time. That's why I Yeah, asked. like, oh, you're spoiling him by holding him all the time. Just leave him. He'll cry it out, you know. I'm so happy that I have a comeback for that now. <laughs> I'm so I'm prepared. The like, doctor said. <laughs> like, no, research and studies show for the past 50 years, da-da-da-da-da. Like, I'm just going to go off because... And it and it really does go back to that attachment thing, mm-hmm. you know. Like if you, the more you don't do, the more you just leave them, the more they're just going to be like, "What the heck?" That's heartbreaking. Yeah, that's that literally, literally heartbreaking. And I think that I know that's why I, I made really good decisions growing up. Like I was so honest with my parents. I never lied. And I'm just like, "What the heck?" Like I want my mom to raise my baby, so she, he turns out like that when I'm thinking, but now I realize she was always someone I could go to mm-hmm. never judged me and always was there as like great feedback. And so that's what you and I will definitely be for our baby. Absolutely. Um, not yelling at him for little things that, um, we can. Yeah. And I like how she was also saying like the establishing those boundaries, right? right? Like you still tell him, you're yeah. still telling him no, yeah. but you're just dealing with it a different way opposed right. to like, you're not going to get your bedtime story and you're not going to get that. Like threatening no. them. You like just, you, don't you know, threaten you, you them. pick them up cause you're not doing that thing. You're not going to mm-hmm. get that thing. I'll pick you up and it sucks. And I'm here with you so you can get those emotions out, mm-hmm. but you're still not getting that thing. Right. Right, so I, I think that that's a really good way to go about it. But yeah, at the same time, everybody has their own parenting style. Yeah, for sure. Nobody is wrong. This is just advice to get you there. Um, and all the people, I'm just going to say this now: all the people on the internet are going to be telling me I know how to raise my baby. <laughs> so <laughs> I just, I'm going to have all the research done so I can just be like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> well, and at the same time, that's what I think the biggest advice that I've gotten from people that have kids mm-hmm. uh, is. Don't listen to anybody else. Like, don't let anybody else tell you that what you're doing is wrong, right? Like, there is science and all that, Mm -hmm. and and that's great. But just because somebody's doing it different doesn't mean that it's wrong. So nobody has a right to tell you, obviously, unless you're threatening the life of your child. But now it bugs me, like, if I know somebody who's letting their child cry it out, like, I just want to say, like, that's not like... Well, so there's a difference between telling them what to do no, and yeah. educating them about it. Well, like, hey, this is a book that I found really exactly. interesting. That's, that's the way to Here's go a copy it. of it. Um, and because I didn't know, da, da, da. Yeah, there's yeah, ways. Yeah, there's, there's ways to do it opposed to being like, hey, you can't do that. You yeah. shouldn't do that to your... I do that people, with my animals already, so I'm so scared. Like, don't push my dog like that or don't do that to my dog. <laughs> people say something to my baby. Don't you dare say that to my baby. <laughs> Nobody can yell at my kid. Like, I know that for sure. <laughs> but anyways, yes, we're all different and have yeah. our own styles and i'll respect that so. so yeah please guys we hope you enjoyed don't forget to rate review and subscribe the easiest way is on the little purple app on your phone which is apple Podcasts, or you can just go online apple Podcasts, and you can uh, check us out there uh, and you can listen to this anywhere you listen to your podcast google play spotify stitcher and you can always go to www.cococalientepodcast.com and you can also check out our merchandise there don't 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 forget to follow us at Coco Caliente Podcast on Instagram and at Coco Caliente Pod on Twitter. Thank you. Thank you, guys.
If you want to be the most interesting person at the cocktail party, well, hop on over and listen to the Brain Candy Podcast. Our award-winning content will have you laughing while you're learning. We read all the best articles, books, and studies, and keep up with new TV shows, documentaries, and pop culture. And then we cram it all into two shows a week. Conspiracy theories, cannibal rabbits, unsolved mysteries, the history of the Walkman. There's something for everyone. The Brain Candy Podcast. Find our link in the show notes. Or simply search for the Brain Candy Podcast on on your podcast app.